You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. For 30 years, the Forum on Workplace Inclusion has served as a convening hub for those seeking to grow their leadership and effectiveness in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion by engaging people, advancing ideas, and igniting change. Registration is now open for our 31st annual conference called Bridging the Gap on April 16th, 17th, and 18th, 2019, located in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota. Register by March 1st to take advantage of early bird rates. Discounts up to $140 off are available for individual conference packages and up to $190 off our group rates. Even more discounts are available. Ask about our team meeting packages, government discounts, and small business nonprofit discounts. Some discounts are up to 40% off. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion Annual Conference is the largest workplace diversity, equity, and inclusion conference in the U.S. and one of the largest in the world. Register today or visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org for more information. This is Episode 9 of the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast, titled Race, Inclusion, and Colorism, How Understanding the History Can Help Us Transform, with presenter Mila Gross-Phillips and Forum Event Coordinator Ben Rue. This episode explains what is colorism and its history, the various ways colorism impacts diversity and inclusion, and how awareness of colorism can change the way you do business. Thank you for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates on the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast, Race, Inclusion, and Colorism, How Understanding the History Can Help Us Transform with presenter Milo Gross Phillips. I'm Ben Rue, Program Coordinator here at the Forum. Milo Gross is a speaker, diversity coach, seminar developer, and author of 11 Reasons to Become Race Literate, Essentials, Eight Essentials to Race Conversation, and Speaking Race in Healthcare. She is the creator of Race Demystified, a two-day intensive aimed at healing racism. Milo Gross has more than 20 years of experience creating and facilitating programs. Today, Milagros will be exploring the 500-year-old legacy of colorism and its impact on our modern workplace as we seek to create inclusion and belonging in our organizations. Without further ado, I put um, Milagros Phillips. Hello. Today, we're going to be talking about colorism. More than 100 years before the Mayflower landed in the continental USA, colorism was alive and well, and it was being used as a form of division that determined your economy, your class, your position in society. Today, colorism is alive and well and could be undermining your hiring, promotion, retention, mentoring, and ultimately your bottom line. We're gonna look at colorism from two perspectives. We're gonna look at it from the perspective of history. And we're also gonna look at it from the perspective of how that history may be affecting your organization today. Colorism in the Americas. Colorism in the Americas started with the Spaniards. A lot of people don't realize that not too long after Columbus landed in La Española, modern day Dominican Republic, 
a lot of different European countries decided to come and partake of the wealth that was in those islands in the Caribbean. Colorism is something that has existed for hundreds of years among people of color in particular, but also a, a, it has existed with uh, whites who have, have colorism more as a bias um, that goes right alongside of racism. Colorism um, is something that um, is actually based on the shades of a person's skin. When Europeans started arriving in the Caribbean, they needed a way to determine who could inherit and who couldn't. Because there were a lot of children that were being produced from uh, people being raped, from um, um, illicit relationships and so on, the Europeans wanted to make sure that everyone knew who actually could inherit. Remember, in the European system, only the firstborn male could inherit. So they came up with something called castas. Eventually, they actually, um, be, that became a system with them. But what they did, because a lot of people couldn't read and write, was that they set up these, these pictures. And um, it started out at 16 pictures, but eventually it came to be almost 50, or sometimes over 50, depending on who was actually um, determining um, the, the castas. So what the Europeans did was they had these, these paintings, these small paintings on a sheet of paper, usually about 16 different paintings. And the first one on the left would be uh, the picture of a European male and a European female and the child. And, and so those were called Spaniards if they were from Spain, French if they were from France, they were Dutch and so on and so forth. And then it moved on from there, um, you know, a European male mating with uh, what they call Indian, which was a native um, and, and, and that child. And each one of those had a name. They had some very interesting names and I'm, I'm gonna talk about those in a minute because they, those names had some very, very specific um, meanings. But they had these pictures so that everyone would know that the only people who could inherit were the children from two Europeans. So if a male was born from two Europeans, they could inherit the wealth of the family. But if that male mated with, um, with a, a descendant of an African or with an African or with a native, those children could not inherit. And that's what that, that pictorial, the castas, that's what it was really about. At the very bottom, the 16th one was a, an African or African descendant male and female and their child. And they were literally at the bottom of the rung. And so everyone else was in between. Children who were born from... Um, from the mating of a European and um, a native or a European and an African, particularly male 
because if the women did it, they a lot of times they would just kill them if a woman got pregnant from um, from an African or a native. But um, but but if a man did that, if a man got a woman, you know, pregnant, one of the lesser members of the caste, there was nothing wrong with that. It was not considered you know to have anything wrong. And in fact, it was deemed to be a good thing because they were trying to grow a um, um, they were trying to grow as many enslaved people as they could, because remember, each person was worth money. And um, the more enslaved people you had, the wealthier you were considered to be. So each enslaved person was worth money. So what they did was um, they, they made sure that everyone understood the rules, and that became institutionalized. It was one of the first institution, institutions in the new world what were the castas or the caste system. So um, there were some attributes that were given to those children who were um, what, what we call, what we came to call mixed race children, okay? So if you have a European male who mated with either a native or uh, an African woman, their child would be, would have a specific name based on whether it was two natives that were mating, a native and an African, and so on and so forth. But if it was a, um, a European male and anyone else, those people were, uh, those children were actually allowed to work and live sometimes in the household. They were not considered part of the family but they were allowed to work within the household, which means that they became the maids, the cooks, and so on and so forth. So again, not considered part of the family, but they were often considered part of the household. Because of, uh, of the mixing of the Europeans and natives or Europeans and Africans, those children very often had um, features of the, their enslavers. So, um, you know, they would have long, straight hair or, um, or wavy or curly hair. They would have lighter skin and therefore were considered to be closer than, uh, closer to their enslavers and colonizers than people who actually worked in the field. Because remember, the people in the field are out in the sun. Their skin is darker because they're getting more sun. The melanin is more active in their skin. And so, um, and they were considered to be less than. In a world where you could buy a human being for $3, some of the women that were children of their enslavers and therefore had lighter skin and longer, straighter hair and so on, were considered to be more beautiful. And in fact, some of them came to be worth upwards of thousands of dollars. People would uh, actually pay thousands of dollars to have one of these women in their household. So back to the firstborn male. If the child of that union was a firstborn male of mixed race, that child could not inherit. And that was made very clear. They wanted to make sure that everyone understood the rules and therefore that they created these, these castas. The, the, the names or what they call the children, everyone had their own name. 
okay, their individual name, but as groups of children, they were referred to as saltatras, which means going backwards, lobo, which means wolf, tente en el aire, which means up in the air, or no te entiendo, I don't understand you. That's actually in the castas, um, as what they would call these children, depending on who the, the parentage was. This casta system spread throughout the colonies. And indeed, it also spread to the continental USA, where you know there were people that were being enslaved. Colorism is rampant throughout the Caribbean, North, Central, and South America. In the Dominican Republic where I was born, there was a time that a woman was considered um, to be more valuable if she was light-skinned than it was if she knew how to read and write. Mostly because it meant that she would be able to find a husband more easily, she would have a better life, and so on and so forth. The castas have left us with a legacy that still exists today. And that legacy may actually be controlling some things in your organization that you may not even be aware of. But before we get into that, let me talk a little bit about um, what it meant to have lighter skin within this caste system. In this caste system, the people who had lighter skin were more likely to get married. They were um, more likely to, um, to get a job they were more likely to, um, to be able to amass a little bit of wealth, not a lot, but a little bit of wealth. They were traditionally treated better. And so therefore, they were given what we call in this day, privilege. So it's one of the first ways that you see privilege was um, with these um, lighter skinned people. What that did was it caused separation within communities of color. So people who had darker skin were beaten more often when they were enslaved. More was expected of them. They were treated badly all the way around. They were accused of things that they, crimes that they did not commit. They were always seen as guilty before they were seen as innocent. They uh, found it um, a lot more difficult to um, get along in the society because they were seen as, as the bottom of the rung within the society. And people who were deemed above them, right, because they had lighter skin, felt that it was their right to mistreat these people. So the darker you were, the more often you got beaten. Unfortunately, that often meant that you also got beaten more often by your parents. Because remember, they absorbed the same system. And so now they're passing that on to their children. And how they would pass it on was the way that they received it, which was through violence and mistreatment and being made to feel like you were less than. When I was a child in the Dominican Republic, I remember people making comments about um, darker skinned people, how 
um, they were ugly. They were considered to be ugly. They weren't considered to be very bright. And, um, and anything that was negative was attributed to them. To this day, that 500-year-old legacy is perpetuated, not just throughout the Caribbean, Central, and South America, but also in North America. When we look at the way that people are treated today, um, it's not much different from the way that they were treated back then. The thing is that today, it's no longer okay to do that. We look down on people treating other people badly because of the color of their skin. However, we've never done anything to address it. And so it still exists. It perpetuates. It, um, it's something that people make reference to in communities of color over and over and over again. And people don't realize that what it is is part of the way that they have absorbed the colonization and they have absorbed the oppression of living in a colonizing system and in a system of enslavement. So <clears throat> what are the ways in which uh, colorism affects us today? Well, I'm going to go back a moment and talk about um, some of the ways that it affects children. And, you know, even the hopes and dreams of parents, particularly in, uh, in places like, you know, Brazil and, and, and um, Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico and Cuba and so on, you know, people would, um, would have children and they would hope that their children would be lighter skinned than themselves so that they could have a better life than they themselves had had. Parents, would um, would hide girls or, or lock them in their room if they fell in love with a black man. And, um, you know, there's their families in which people are still doing things like that. People would absolutely be offended if you brought a dark-skinned person to their home and introduced them as your boyfriend, your partner, or even your friend in some cases. I mean, I'm talking about today. In the US, there were things like the paperback test. The paperback test was um, if your skin was darker than the color of a paper bag, of a brown paper bag, you would not be admitted to certain clubs. You couldn't attend certain schools. And we're talking, these are all black organizations, okay? Um, you couldn't join certain activities or be on the teams. You, you couldn't be you know, like a, a cheerleader and things like that in some of these schools. Colorism today, uh, it, it, it affects everything in our society and we don't usually talk about colorism. Colorism is a legacy, as I said, that can be traced back 500 years. However, if you look today, if you look in any Caribbean country, even the US, if you look at the, the Latino TV stations, you find that the people who get the jobs where there's visibility are usually the people with the lighter skin. So 
you can see it in the TV programs, the newscasters, the movies. You see it in politicians, even church officials. The lighter your skin or the more European you look, the better your chances of getting the job, whatever that may be. The children that um, did, I want to go back to the, the, the doll test because that, that is so insidious. And um, there is a, a handout that I have for those of you who are interested, uh, a PDF with just some references that you can use to go back and take a look at some of these things. I really suggest that you look at that, the doll test. In the doll test, what they did, and this, the, the first one was done in the 1950s, but it's been repeated over and over and over again with the same exact results. What they did in that test was they gave children, young children before the age of 10, they put two dolls in front of them. And children as little as three years old, they would ask them, who's the good doll? Who's the bad doll? They would ask them, uh, who's the pretty doll? Who's the ugly doll? Who's the mean doll? And who is the good doll? And nine out of 10 children attributed the negative, um, they gave all the negative attributes to the black doll, the positive attributes to the white doll. The lighter the skin, the cleaner, the kinder, the sweeter, the more deserving people are deemed to be. The darker the skin, the meaner, the uglier, the dirtier, the angrier, and the less deserving people are deemed to be. The sad thing when you look at the doll test is what happens to these children. And by the way, that reaction of the negative and positive negative attributes to the darker skin doll and positive att attributes to the white looking doll was found throughout. It didn't matter if the children were African American, if the children were Latino, if the children uh, were white, they all had the same reaction. Because remember, we all live under the same umbrella. We live in a racialized world now. So um, the children are definitely showing the signs very early on of what we as adults have not healed and have not taken responsibility for. So both sets of children had the same reaction. The interesting thing and the sad thing really shows up when the researcher asked the child, particularly black children, what doll do you look like? You see in their little eyes and in their faces the confusion because in their hearts they know, I'm a good person, I'm clean, I'm a loving child. That's what they know in their hearts. But what they see out in the world is that the people who look like them aren't giving those attributes. And as a result, those children, when they're asked, what doll looks like you, are confused. And you see the sadness in their little faces when they pick up the doll that actually does look like them. Some children pick the white doll, even though they're dark-skinned children. Just goes to show how much colorism there is in our society and how it remains unaddressed hundreds of years after the enslaved people have been set free and some of the colonies have been liberated. Colorism affects today's organizations, 
studies show that the lighter your skin, the more likely you are to land the job, to get the role in the TV show, to get promoted, to be mentored, to become CEO, and even to make more money. According to the University of Georgia study, dark-skinned Africans and African-Americans face a distinct disadvantage when applying for jobs as compared to their lighter applicants. Colorism is not just part of communities of color. A study published in the Journal of Social Currents tells us that whites see lighter-skinned Blacks and Hispanics as being smarter than their darker-skinned counterparts. Even though most people doing the hiring are white, this is how they see people. Given that, that could be affecting how people are hired in your organization. Colorism also affects the way that people are treated in the organization. Studies find that the lighter skinned people are treated better they're more likely to get the promotion. They're more likely to be invited out at, um, when people go out in the evenings for social events. And they're more likely to be befriended by their work counterparts. Imagine that when you're creating teams and you're looking to create successful teams. How is management treating all the people on that team? Is everyone being respected for who they are? Are they being seen as contributors to the team? Are they being seen as people who are smart and innovative and people who can bring new ideas and new ways of seeing things to the organization? When an organization works on colorism and looks honestly at what is happening within their organization around this thing we call colorism, they're able to see how biases are playing a role in the way that their organization functions. It's extremely important that we take colorism seriously. Colorism moves hand in hand with racism. While colorism is a prejudice, racism is prejudice plus power, which means that people in power use race and color to determine what the organization or who will be hired into that organization, who fits into the executive pool, who are the people that we see as being angry, even though they may not necessarily be angry, who are the people that we see as being nice, sweet, someone you want to work with, and someone who would be great on your team. How are you picking the people on your team? All of these could be determined by your unconscious biases based on the melanin in someone's skin. Melanin is something that nature created as a way of protecting people from the strong sun that affects people in equatorial countries. Nature is a marvel of technology. The texture of someone's hair is actually determined by the follicle, which is the little hole that the hair comes out through. Think about this. If you live in colder climates, and by the way, 
people who, who tribes who developed in colder climates tend to be hairier than people who live close to the equator. They have more body hair and facial hair, men and women. And that has to do with those traits are left over from Neanderthalism. And those are traits that help people to stay warm. In the warmer climates, people have darker skin. People in the African continent developed with thick hair that grows close to the head and is dark in color. What that does is when the sun hits the dark hair, it makes the person perspire. Perspiration cools your skin. Ultimately, we are all Africans. That is what the research is telling us. That is what science is telling us. It takes approximately 20,000 years for people to lose their melanin. So as Africans explored and went out into these colder climates and remained there, they lost their melanin. We are one human family. We are all connected through our DNA and we are all Africans, regardless of how we look today. So, as we look at ourselves and we look at our organizations, colorism is something that was created in order to justify divisions that allowed for people to be colonized and enslaved. It no longer serves us. We have a lot to gain by getting rid of colorism just as we have much to gain by getting rid of racism. It is estimated that racism in and of itself lowers the gross national product by about 2% a year. Can you imagine what we could do if we actually got rid of racism? It may take us some generations to do that, but if we never work on colorism and racism, it's never gonna go away. People need the information with which to make the transformation. People need to understand the history behind colorism because understanding the history gives people choice and it gives them the opportunity to create something new. In closing, colorism affects organizations across the board. Organizations committed to equity and inclusion would do well to understand colorism and its impact on their organizational practices. Thank you. Thank you, Milgross, for that riveting and very informative podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the history of colorism and its long-lasting effects on our society, please feel free to contact Milagros directly at info at milagrosphillips.com or visit her at her website, www.milagrosphillips.com. I would like to thank you all again for, for listening to today's podcast and look forward to you joining us for future podcasts. Thank you so much and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to register today for the 31st annual Forum on Workplace Inclusion called Bridging the Gap. 
Register by March 1st to take advantage of early bird rates with discounts up to $140 off available for individual conference packages and up to $190 off our group rates. More information and to register at forumworkplaceinclusion.org. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates on the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback.